this is Fintech Unplugged with Suresh Bajani and me, Robert Cornish. So, Robert, so, we're here again. Where? Wake up. Where are we today? Wake up. Oh my god, I'm in a dream. I feel like I'm almost in a pantomime. I'm still recovering from the pantomime, hence the voice. Uh, yeah, well, it's not surprising. You did get up to a lot in that pantomime. But hey. You know what? Yeah? I think we should get someone yeah. on board with us that's been in the industry potentially longer than us, right? Older than us. Well, that's easy for me. But you know what? We've had people that love crypto. I wonder if we could get somebody that has got a different view on it. A different view on crypto? Someone that knows the bee's knees in... Who knows where the honeypot is? David. Let's get David, David in. David Parker! So thank you very much, gents, for the invite to you come can, in. You can, you can take the beekeeping stuff off now. It's all right. They, they, you left the bees outside. Well, it was interesting. Um, I don't know if... Actually, you might remember the first prepaid card in the UK, Open Loot, yeah. was launched on August the 13th, 2005. Wow. Polymath Consulting was set up in April 2005. Wow. Not April Fool's Day. No, no. But it does, <laughs> it does mean prepaid cards and yeah. Polymath Consulting are both teenagers this year. Oh, how sweet. So we finally become a teenager. And what was that prepaid card? That was APS uh, Cash, Cash Plus, Plus, followed half up, quick on the heels with PPS's Pay360 yeah. and Amex's travel card. Oh, Do you remember the Amex travel card? Died. Yeah. It came, it soared like a star. And died yeah, rather quickly. It got a bit too near the sun. It like did. Icarus. It did. It, it sort of plunged fairly quickly, and they never were seen again, really, over here. We, we like we like classical illusions, but we're glad to have you on here because you're 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 someone that's got a lot more, should we say, voice in the industry, and we we, we like to bring things out of the the bin of confusion that that cause a bit of controversy. We don't we don't always want people just to give the party line, and because you're not actually aligned with any particular organisation. I mean, no one will employ me. Yeah, exactly. That, that's one, one way to put it. It does mean that we can ask you questions that other people might not be able to answer. So let's flip to start with and, 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 and look at something as fun as the latest on crypto, the, the bit turd. I saw, I saw a post recently with a, a turd in the shape of bit saying it what you mean can go something, down quicker something than... that has no underlying value is now worth nothing. And that's a surprise, isn't it? So, you've been an, a great advocate of, of Bitcoin? Yeah, he loves it. He's a, such a big fan of crypto. He's been talking about it. No, no, it. no, excuse me. Let us, yeah. let us be careful our terminology here. Crypto and distributed ledger, I personally believe, has a rosy future in a number of areas. And I'm very strongly for crypto per se. But the word I'd put before that, and I'm talking to a lawyer here, yeah. is regulated crypto. Okay. 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 Is there such so, a thing? Yes, there's crypto which actually has KYC and AML attached to it, okay. as opposed to bandits doing things in the night, as opposed to what I would call Bitcoin. So I've so far had a wannabe attack on me. <laughs> I must have had at least half a dozen emails telling me they've got my passwords, um, the usual porn ones. And do you know what? Every single one that has one thing in common. And what is that, David? They'd all like to be paid in Bitcoin. Ah, interesting. So... I look back in history, I look back in recent years, and how have we managed to cure an endemic problem that's been, you know, many people would say righteously should be fixed? Ivory poaching. How have we fixed ivory poaching? And how have we fixed ivory poaching is really simple. Most of the countries have got together and said it's very simple. You cannot sell ivory. You cannot trade ivory. You cannot own ivory if it's for sale. If you've got antique ivory, fair enough. 
but you've got to prove it's over pre-1947, which is very hard to do. So basically, you can't have ivory now and go walk into the store, sell it at auction, do anything with it. Otherwise, it's illegal. No one will touch it. Why don't we just do the same for Bitcoin? You walk into a com- you walk into this country with Bitcoin tokens on your computer, you get a £10,000 fine. Trust me, it'll be amazing to see how quickly Bitcoin stops being used around the world by criminals. Now, you'll tell me they'll move to other things, like bank accounts. Yeah, yeah like cash. Like cash. But you know what? Dogs can smell cash, and bidding millions of dollars in suitcases in cash is quite traceable. Hence, Al Capone was traced for tax evasion. Or maybe uh, bank accounts. Ooh, Danske Bank may have just had a few problems on that, but they managed to trace the money because it's all electronic. And There's why tr- can't you trace Bitcoin? Because you can. <laughs> it's totally traceable now. It's traceable to a nice anonymous number, and that's it. But you can trace it. Well, you can trace it against dark web addresses. You can t- trace it against... Can I go and arrest somewhere? Can I go and arrest you based on some anonymous number? No, I can't. But so the, so under MLD five, which is not will yet, all require an, uh, no anonymity. Great. So therefore, that will kill Bitcoin. But Bitcoin doesn't rely totally on anonymity. Seventy five percent of the volume of Bitcoin traded today is done by trading houses. It's nearly all done as, as, a, as, a, as a bet. A bet and gamble. Yeah. So it's actually, not, it's, it's not, not being used as a currency. No, and it's not being used for illegal purposes. It's just being used... Well, no, it's being used to pay off fraudsters and everything else. So to, you might as well say to people who are then buying Bitcoin, go and gamble on the horses. Now, I run besttipping.com, napchacker.com, and toptipsters.co.uk. Not that you're, you're plugging any of them, but no. hey, hey-ho. <laughs> um, um, you know... Go, go, and, go and bet on the horses. I can give you much better returns on the horses than these guys are getting on Bitcoin at the moment. What was it, 15,000 last year? Now it's, what, three? Shit, you know, my worst, my worst tipster does better than that. Yeah, and it goes the other way too. But the, 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 I think, I think the, the, the concept behind Bitcoin and the way in which it was intended to work has sort of belied the actual consequences. Ah, but that's why I'm saying distributed ledger and crypto, especially distributed ledger, I think in the next... Two to three years, we've already started to see some major B2B business cases using distributed ledger technology around things like KYC, around um, letters of credit, things like that, where nanosecond speed is not important, but where accuracy and uh, an unmutable ledger becomes highly relevant, these type of um, solutions are going to really... Uh, demonstrate the real value of what I have to admit was a core technology in, in Bitcoin that has now grown out of it. And you could say, if you look around our industry, we've all seen a few rising stars in the prepaid world come up and disappear down again. Funnily enough, the ashes of some of those companies are now much stronger than the original companies that were around in those days. Yeah, because so, so, they've matured. Yes. So, so David, I was going to ask you, so you've got your ear to the ground, you've got lots of you know prospects, clients coming to you. In the space of kind of crypto, what are they talking? What what are the new innovations that you're seeing on the ground? That's one question. And secondly, is do you see any change of perspective from the schemes in relation to crypto? I'm going to take your second question first. I think both schemes, yes, have taken a more I don't know considered view on crypto. Is maybe whereas before you could argue it was sort of a the answer was no. The answer is now demonstrate you've got good AML, good KYC. Let us understand how you're using the programs and everything else. So I think 
both schemes, both Visa and MasterCard, have um, changed their view on crypto and are now open to business as long as it is sensible business, if that makes sense. So, so why do you think that they always, they want you to keep it separate? Why have we not seen where I could do a live switch from a, you know, a cryptocurrency to fiat? Why is it that they want this separation? The line between what is live and what is not is becoming increasingly thin as opposed to what it used to be. So you these days, there are a couple of products out there now where you still need to sell and then move it in, much as you might sell stocks and shares. You then move it into an account as opposed to being, you know, I don't know many debit cards out there these days where you can have, you know, stock on the stock exchange. And when you spend money on your debit card, it automatically deducts it from your stock on the stock exchange. Likewise, the gold cards out there, there is there needs to be a point of selling and of moving that money into the account so you can then spend that money. Now, that can happen almost effectively real time. And this is where technology is coming in to make it a smooth customer journey. I liken it very much to um, a duck swimming over the lake. The duck looks very serene. The lake looks very calm. It happens to be underwater. There's lots of paddling going on like mad. The customer experience just wants a great UX. They want a great journey. Now, if, I'm, if behind the scenes there's lots of things going on to meet the regulatory requirements, that's fine. And I think the same is with crypto. The customer experience um, with many of these new products is becoming increasingly smooth, although behind the scenes there's often lots of things going on. And in terms of what you're seeing on the ground... I think what we're seeing on the ground is, on crypto, I'm going to say nothing special in terms of prepay. There's a few people doing stuff where it's much more people want to make crypto available through their prepaid cards. I think where we're seeing it more interesting is what I said earlier, which is distributed ledger. I'm seeing a lot of fintechs. I mean, I remember two, three years ago, sitting on Dragon's panels, we started to see the these companies coming in with DLT ideas. We're now starting to see a number of these actually being rolled out and start to become real life things, particularly, as I said, in the more B2B space. I mean, I, I think some of the stuff around letters of credit, particularly where you've got to have a really strong audit of what's going on, I think that makes it a very strong business case well, I, there. I think things like letter of credit and also I think where you need provenance. So immutability yeah. is really good with provenance. So provenance for diamonds, provenance for luxury goods, provenance for art and antiques artwork anything where there's provenance and you have an expert that can put that provenance up to that date on well they've talked about they, they've talked about haven't they some of the really high-end goods these days embedding almost chips into them these days so you can almost have like a a dlt type bit of software in there so that if you're buying a gucci handbag a you know it's real and b all the three owners of the can be traced through and everything else. And is that's, that, that's something yeah. that, that Suresh does on a regular basis. He, li he likes buying his uh, Primark handbags. Uh, <laughs> and, and Primark will, will need to put that authenticity, otherwise Suresh would never want to buy it again. They'll start getting fakes out of China yeah, otherwise. Exactly. You know, imagine what they could sell those for. Yeah. You know, at least, I don't know, half the price, 50, 60p. Well, well I, I doubt that. You see, no one day I want to take Robert to a restaurant that isn't Michelin star to actually say, this is how normal people live. <laughs> You're joking me, Suresh. Um, don't you think you should dive into this bin of confusion? Well, I, I, I intend to, but there's one question related to that. It's burning on your lips. It is. You've got it to is, get it out. Which is, Come on. you know, probably every client that you have, because every, every time I speak to somebody, they said, 
I'm doing something groundbreaking. I'm going to do a million cards in the first month. I'm going to do this, that. What, what? How many of my clients have you been talking to? <laughs> ah, see, you uh, have the I best thought I was clients. Special. It's funny. You could almost, <laughs> almost call it cyclical. When prepaid first started in 2005, a few people out there, by about 2007 to 2009, I could guarantee you everyone who walked through the door said they were going to do a million cards. Minimum. They, so this is people like uh, PayPal coming to see you? No, unfortunately, it was significantly smaller companies. Some, most of them aren't around now. But do you remember when PayPal oh, said yes. they were going to do their million cards? They, they said they were going to do a million cards in the first bloody month almost. And, and, it, and it didn't happen? Ever. I wonder why, yeah. <laughs> that would maybe be because they, did a, they had a proposition which required you to move money from one account to another account before you could spend it. Remember the original of PayPal yeah, card yeah. was segregated, it was a prepaid exactly, card, yeah. not, not, on not, a single, not, not on a single balance. But, and then I think the industry grew up from about 2009 to 2013, 14. And we started to get generally more sensible programs coming through. And then in the last two years, we've had this lovely fintech bubble. And I liken it to the South Sea bubble on two things. One is some of the valuations we're seeing going on out there. So we're talking Revolut Monzo here. You might name names. I couldn't dream. Too many of them are my clients. And secondly, is the number of cards that everyone walks in and says they're going to do. Everyone is now back up to saying... I will do a million cards in my first two years. All I've done is I've taken the total number of people in the UK and said, what I'm going to get is 5% of this. And it's that type of approach that causes challenges, I think, as opposed to people saying, not how many people are there out there, but just to get them through my onboarding process, how many people can I actually handle this month? Oh, I've only got capacity for 5,000 or 10,000 or whatever. You know, there is still a big problem. So... I do see a lot of problems still out in the market now with people being too unrealistic unrealistic with what they're going to achieve too quickly. Most, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm talking to a processor and a bin sponsor, and you would much rather see, I know, but you know, none of you expect, you'd all like to have programs walking in saying, I've got 500,000 cards tomorrow. But we all know the realistic program is the one that says, comes in and says, do you know what? I'm going to have 20,000 by the end of the first three months. I'm going to have 50,000 by the end of the first six months. I'll have 100,000 at the end of the first year. And I'm moving my way up to have a couple of hundred thousand, maybe 300,000 in the three years. That's a business case you guys can buy into yeah. because you can see it grow on a steady basis and understand how they'll achieve those numbers. When they come in and say, I'm going to have half a million accounts at the end of the first year. How no, many? No, nothing to back it up other than their graph. What do you divide by? Two, three, four, five? I normally knock a naught off and then divide by three. And that's the you say, well, this will be the fees for your service. And they're like, I can't pay that. And you're saying, but if you're going to do the volume you say, you're going to be paying me three times that amount. And they're like, oh, no, maybe we should bring it down. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is the problem. Um, and it's likewise, all of them want to become banks day one. They all want to become program managers day one how many people and i'm looking again at the two of you because you probably have this as much as i do how many of you have people coming into you almost once a week saying i want to become a program manager and then you say okay have you ever worked in cards before no what do you know about payments oh nothing what have i got i've got this great idea that's going to give me half a million cards by the end of by the end of year one and you look at that and go do you know what? I'm really quite worried whether you're going to actually, you know, have you got the skill sets? Do you understand what really becoming a program manager means in terms of 
actually what you've got to do as a job, what do you, what the obligations on you are. I mean, you're the regulated entity, Robert. I how am. many of the, how many of these people scare you? Um, no one scares me. <laughs> Look at his shirt. Hey. I was going to say today yeah. he's got a pink shirt. He's got pink flowers. Yellow. Actually, do you know if I had my bees here, they'd be really happy. They'd be all over him. <laughs> that shirt is full of flowers. They think the nectar flow is starting. You but finally a, pulled. Robert. Yeah, do you know hey, what? I could pull the bees. Hey, you could even. Uh, yeah, except for the queen bee wouldn't come out for you. I'm afraid. That's I'll a, have to leave all the birds for you, David. <laughs> no, the queen bee's all mine. But uh, yes, you get you get all the workers out. But uh, that's another story. <laughs> So on, on that on that note, though, I tell you what was quite interesting. So yes, my honey is award winning. <laughs> I'm surprised you haven't plugged the website for your, yeah, yeah, your for honey. honey for the honey. We don't want to know where your honey pot is, David. I remember the first business case for Revolut, and I know that you were involved in some of the earlier business cases. Right? Well, we did the bloody contracts with you when you were at yes. another company. That's why. And no names mentioned on this. And they were predicting in the first year they would do fifteen thousand cards. And actually, it was refreshing to see that. It was like, oh my God, someone's actually thought about it and said, we think you're going to do more than that. Maybe double three times, not a hundred times, but they were more realistic because it was a lower figure. Yeah, and it's funny. I mean, but the other thing about them, and, and, and this people always talk about the speed Revolut, yeah. as an example, moves at. I actually looked at the dates last week. Mm-hmm. We did the contract negotiations July 2014. They wow. launched... June 2015. Took them a year from the contract negotiations to get live. And everyone says to you, and I'm sure again looking at you, oh, we want to be live in three or four months. I have to say, having swapped from being a lawyer to running a payments business, that one year bit sounds normal now. Thank you. And, and we always say to people, budget six to nine months to get live. And do you know what? If you get live in five months and 20 days, your board can give you a bonus. And if you get live in eight months and 20 days, you're on target. Yeah. But the point is... This comes down to being realistic throughout everything you're doing in this space. It is a regulated industry with detailed technical requirements. And what scares me, these people looking to become program managers who don't have, first of all, an understanding of payments. Ultimately, what we're doing is moving money around. Yeah. Okay. So there's regulatory responsibilities around that. AML, KYC, (laughs) stuff like that. Making sure you know who your customers is, source of funds. And secondly is then there's some card knowledge in terms of understanding how cards work and, and all this type of stuff. And monitoring how risk work. And how yeah, and monitoring how they charge. Risk and how they charge. You know, we all know it is not, you know, ten a penny to become a lot of the people these days becoming scheme members, you would argue are doing it more for the valuations on their companies than they are doing it to actually save money because it's probably costing them at least as much. Of course. Yeah. So, so David, I've reached into the bin of confusion and I've got something very relevant right now. So what is the difference between a challenger bank and a bank challenger? Oh, this is one of my favourite topics. And I would answer that in a simple answer by a a challenger bank is defined by one word. The second word, bank. Bank. (laughs) It's a really complicated definition. To be a challenger bank, you need to be a Bank. bank. Okay. To be a bank challenger, you may do that as an e-money license or however you want. But I get rather annoyed with lots of these companies out there claiming to be the latest challenger bank. And actually, all they're doing is running on prepaid and e-money. Okay. They're not a challenger bank. They're, they might want to call themselves a bank challenger and they're challenging the banks for some of their customers to give better service. No problem. But they're not a challenger bank. To be a challenger bank... You need to be a bank. And that's a regulated statement. 
And I would argue there will be total confusion. And we as an industry have an obligation to make people understand or help people, the man on the street understand what is the difference between bank challengers and challenger banks. It's very naughty, I think, of an industry that people don't really understand the difference because they, they, there are some fundamental differences in how their money is held and security and all these type of things. It becomes, I would just say, poor on the industry that we haven't clarified that and helped. And you could argue whose responsibility is it. The FCA re- you know, only last year spent a lot of money talking about how your money is safeguarded till £85,000 or £75,000 now that we've devalued. Mind you, after yesterday's currency devaluation, maybe it's 65000 now. Um, but pounds as, in as your an account. customer, should I really care? If I can get the same service from both and they're doing the same things, does it really matter to me as an end customer? Well, it only matters in terms of, there's, and Robert will better speak than me, there's different types of security in how your money is held here as yeah. a lawyer. And, you know, it, it, it's, it is important that, you know, if, if consumers believe that all money held in an account is protected until £75,000, if they suddenly find out it was actually different on prepaid, in fact, you could argue it's better on prepaid because the funds are ring-fenced. Unless, of course, the bank in which their ring-fence goes down. Thank and you. you haven't properly... So, so it, get, uh, you know, concentration because then rate. the flip side is in the old days of prepaid where you couldn't you could have an account that acted like a current account, but you couldn't call it a current account. And then are we kind of saying so now you can call it a current account, but not a bank account. OK, so yeah. no, the schemes, it's all been approved. So if you notice, they call them current accounts now. Mm-hmm. And in fairness, the EPA helped lobby for that and they got that through. So the, so the, the bank challengers can call them current accounts. They can't just say they offer bank accounts. Right, because they're not a bank. Because they're not a bank. covered off earlier. But another brand that used to have on their website said the best bank account with the word bank then crossed out halfway through. Interesting. But who polices it? Let's say I I launch tomorrow a prepaid card and I say the best bank you'll ever get. Who's really going to slap me on the wrist? Because I've hearing these rules for many years. I've never seen anyone ever police them. In fairness, I am aware that the schemes do look at these sites and their franchise team and then do write to the regulated entities looking over at Robert and his company who's the bin sponsor and say naughty boy your compliance team are not doing their job and they're not checking on things yeah and it is always the bin sponsor that gets the fine which is uh, <coughs> which means we need to be more careful and make sure things go over. so let, let me dive into the bin of confusion again oh this is an interesting one David so this this is this is looking at the the, the, the future of technology and biometrics do you, do you see this whole push towards biometrics, whether it's using retina scan, fingerprinting, or... That's minor, mate. That's minor. What? So, so, so a few years ago, they were, I saw some lovely press releases. They can, you can now authenticate your card using the scans from your brain. Right. You can authenticate it That's using... That's not going to work for Suresh, obviously. He can authenticate it using um, his heartbeat rhythm. We all have unique heartbeat oh, come rhythms. come on. So, has got neither a heart nor a brain. He's like the scarecrow off of The Wizard of Oz. Okay. Robert worded that the moment I walked away from the mic. I just <laughs> want to emphasise that. That's the heartbeat Robert does not have at all. The brain bit is questionable. <laughs> Look, I haven't mentioned hair follicles so far, so that's why I thought <laughs> okay. I'd be nice. Okay, because yeah, we could we could do it on hair follicle talent. pattern. So my point is, and as for dress sense, we won't go there. But no, seriously, I think what's interesting is is some more research that came out last week that says the consumer is now happier to use their fingerprint than they are a pin. So I suppose I'm only waiting now, and we have seen now the first of a, a new. 
I suppose, a generation of cards come along now where the fingerprint scanner is built into the card. So you just push it into the card reader like you'd normally do with your thumb and finger holding it. And rather than putting a pin number in, it's reading your thumbprint to authenticate. Okay, now that's, so that's a very smooth customer journey. Yeah, yeah. It's very smooth. You know, if you've got to put your card in, you might as well you know, hold it with your thumb and push it in yeah. there. Now, obviously, what happens when you've got a dirty thumb? No problem. You've got to fall back of a pin and stuff like that. I think the bigger problem comes is, you know, we're already seeing burglars go into houses to steal car keys so they can then go outside and steal the car. That's without the ones. So the question is, of course, now until the burglar goes in, finds your wallet, sees it's a fingerprint ring, then goes up and ties you down and chops your thumb off. You know, you know. Will that work? Well, yes, there's no temperature reading on those ones. Ah. So a, dead, a, a, th- a thumbprint is a thumbprint, mate. You know, I waiting for the first, you know, guy loses thumb in burglary. I don't think and then I'd like the bank to say you, and the bank will say yes sir but you authenticated those payments we have your fingerprint to prove it on the transaction you authenticated those payments I think with Robert they'd have to cut something else off because I don't think that he'd use his finger anyway he'd use something else yeah I'd use my brain my brain scan would be definitely well hang on you could use a palm don't worry we can make it really nasty they also have palm vein scanners now the, a bit big the, for a card um, yeah but it's a nice palm vein on that one Yes, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. But to your point, you know, so with everything going... I love my palm prints on his cheeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's, the problem is they're not the ones on his face, the cheeks. Oh. <laughs> anyway. You were talking about back, end, back rear entries and things. So right? anyway. always does these podcasts naked. Um, so, yeah. you know, you're coming back. I, I think with what we're acquiring for authentication, we are going to see... You know, we've already seen facial recognition as well starting to be used. I've, I remember at a conference five years ago, and I said I can imagine myself walking into a store, picking up some goods, and on the way out, I'd wink twice and wiggle my left ear once. On the basis, that was my unique code to say, yes, I'd approve the purchase. You know, it scanned your face. There's my code, all done, um, just for the... I remember some of the early wearables were doing this, where you'd, you'd have a wearable on, and it would basically you'd trace a pattern. Yeah. I remember those. What ever happened to them? Like everything, you know. People who are going to launch five million cards and have everyone using it, because it was such a brilliant idea. A great idea, but maybe no one really wanted it. What problem was it solving? And I always come back to, you know, I spent 20, 25 years at Saatchi's, Bates and McCann Ericsson. <laughs> so ultimately at heart, I'm an ad man. I'm not a payments person. And what that means is I'm always going to look at what's the proposition? Does the customer want it, need it, and will they use it? And fundamentally, you've got to answer those questions. And if they do want it and they will need it and they will use it, you've got a business. But what problem is it solving? We've all done need benefit selling. It's benefit, you know, what need benefit selling are you doing to the consumer these days? So, so David, I've got a question for you. Uh, it's in relation to interchange. Can't you ask Robert of it? <laughs> Robert, he's just... It's interchange. It's interchange. He's a lawyer. No, no. I remember you started a, like a name and shame campaign on Twitter. Oh, God, yes. Where you actually wanted people to name the companies that were charging for fees when they shouldn't be. Yes. And I just wanted to know what was the success of that and were there any obvious ones that really shouldn't have been there? No obvious ones that shouldn't have been there because the what, ones... Even that... government ones? Why shouldn't they be there? They're, they're, they're charging you when they shouldn't do. Actually, my favourite trick now is that some websites, as you know, won't let you pay with commercial cards because they'll charge a fee for that, which they can do. But it's nice when you get certain government sites that haven't picked up on that, and that means I can use my commercial card on that site, so at least they pay a higher interchange. I do enjoy that. Um, I feel like I'm getting some value back from my taxpayer. <laughs> I mean, but the simple bottom line is, with all this interchange, you know... We were promised at the time 
that we were all going to see massive reductions in retail prices. And have we seen that? Well, all the research in Australia and the UK doesn't seem to quite bring it out. But we do have the British Retail Consortium on the stage last week at a conference I was at going on about how they now need to have not just interchange regulation, but scheme fee regulations, because scheme fees are now making up 80% of the costs. And you're going, okay. so let me get this right. You want all the benefits of accepting card payments without any costs. And then you're saying the costs are too high. And then they're talking about British Retail Consortium about creating their own. I don't know if you've heard this. British Retail Consortium want to create their own branded PISP payment network. So PSD2 is going to allow you to make bank payments directly from your bank account. Okay. So you've got got one company already out there with a brand, but you're going to start to see companies launching solutions, especially online. The British Retail Consortium is seeing uh, this as a way of circumventing um, the Visa MasterCard monopoly on... Debit card on debit cards, yeah. So that what they do is they want to launch a brand, which all uh, retailers will then adopt to say use your brand X here and do PISP payments. And at the back end, they will then run a tender for the PISP supplies, so they can swap them in and out however they want, whoever's offering cheaper services. So it's going to drive all the profits in the industry down even more. Well, when there's not much to start with. Correct, but the point that I think is going to be interesting is they believe this is going to save money. And I think it's going to get really interesting once they start to see, because at the moment, don't forget, the big problem on PSD2 is the, uh, and PIS payments is there's no real dispute management what and payment? protection. PISP, <laughs> Payment Initiation Service Provider. Oh, okay. Payments. Sorry, let's just educate a lawyer here on this new regulations coming payments. in. I thought he said PIS payments. <laughs> no, PISP, PISP. Okay. But the point is that, I think what we're going to see here is that if you think about it now, if you make with your credit and debit card, especially the credit card, you've got some really good (laughs) consumer protection built into that. Yes. Okay. What consumer protection is built into this new PSD2 open banking payments today? Uh, Only the protection that is within PSD2 on payments, which covers all payments. It's a lawyer's answer. Thank you. As I said, the question was what? (laughs) So you gave me, you told me where to find the regulations. I asked, what are they? So the, 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 the standard regulation which applies here is the ability to uh, question the payment and you have 13-month period to question your payment. But if I send money to you by mistake, can I, dem- can I demand that money back? Can I go and grab it from your bank account and take it back? You have to go through the normal process. Can I go to your bank account and take it back? You have to go through the process. No, I can't go to your bank account and take it back. It's a simple answer. Okay. Therefore, you might have had that money for three months, six months, twelve. On a credit card, on the other hand, if my goods aren't delivered, can I get my money back? More than a hundred pounds. Of course. How long does it take me? You would just well, the schemes would reverse it quite quickly, and then they'd investigate it thereafter. What we're seeing here is there is a whole range of regulations and legislation been built out to help consumers and manage cards and payments and that thing. We're now seeing these new cards and the new method of payment coming in. Has the consumer got the same level of protection? I would argue no. Retailers are loving and saying we're going to introduce our own almost scheme. I wonder how long till we start getting our first challenges of payments going through this new British Retail Consortium programme with people who want to charge back when a retailer's goods are faulty. Yeah, can we have to build in exactly what the card schemes have to make? And it does even that work? cost? Does that cost money to run yes. that? Oh, but they're saying they should all be able to run this for virtually no money. But it will cost them a lot. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is to run this for no money so retailers can keep all the money. But retailers keep all the money anyway. So, I think we're entering an interesting time on this. I think you could be right. 
David, on that note, what's the longest sentence you can say using as many <laughs> acronyms as possible? Gosh, now. So how about um, uh, something like when a TPP accesses an AISP through its API, obviously the identity of the TPP must be validated against the uh, QTSPs and the NCAs for their regulatory status to ensure that the data can be supplied under GDPR and PSD2 to the TPP. Of course, it may have gone through an integrator on the way. Okay, that's, that's good. We should start building this in for all our consultants. We, we, have, we, had, we had the Dave Birch one was there. I mean, I think, I think you didn't quite get to the David Birch level, but you're, you're, you're up there. I'm younger than him. Are you? Not by, just by I have couple. no idea how old yeah. David Birch is. I uh, think he, he, ageless people. He lives around the corner from me and his local's my local. So I, I blame... So that's certain. why you can both talk in, <laughs> in three-letter acronyms. Roberts can ask you a question and you can't use the word consensus in answering the question. That's consensus. Fine. Consensus. No, consensus. No, consensus. Consent us. Is that how consent you... us? It's one yeah. word. It's not two words. Wow. But you really need to be more about I the detail. Read something. For a lawyer, you know, you really need about the detail. It's all about the detail. Are the legacy banks still dragging their feet over open banking? What we have today is UK CMA nine open banking. Not <laughs> PSD two. CMA nine, what is that? Explain CMA that. was basically the government said, um, you big nine banks. Get together, I'm going to put a body over to you, in charge of you, to make sure you actually roll out open banking. Okay? Now, a couple of other banks have aligned to that, but the point was it was nine banks that were basically being told what to do. The CMA9 open banking is not PSD2 open banking. And this is where it becomes complicated in that what we have today, everyone's calling open banking. It isn't really open banking. We've got nine banks plus maybe Monzo and Starling Live, basically, and that's it. That's 11 banks. So what? Goody two-shoes. There are 9,000 institutions in Europe that potentially are going to have to comply with PSD2 open banking. Okay, That's the difference of scale we're seeing here. So even in the UK, it's all the building societies, all of the e-money issuers, even more wand and all their prepaid cards that are used like for everyday spend have to comply. <coughs> so to that end, therefore, we haven't got PSD2 Open Banking Live. And I saw a recent report that said only 22% of people understood what open banking was. Isn't that lousy? And I went, I can't believe it. A service that basically is in its pilot stage, you've already got 20% awareness. That's pretty impressive. It's not going live for external testing until March and won't go fully live. So in other words, as a consumer, you will not have services on available on PST token banking until September 2019. So therefore, when you say, you know, are they dragging their heels? My answer is they've really got until September next year for everything to be sorted out. Now, yes, they've got to be live from March for external testing and everything else. But the real consumer and, and even then a consumer... Let me give you an example. Today, when you want a mortgage, you've got to go into that mortgage company and you've got to take in a load of bank statements and all sorts of things to prove how much salary you earn and everything else. Because you've got to prove affordability, correct, Robert, on the FCA? No, no. Now, let's think ahead to next September. You're going to walk into that same office and go, I'd like a mortgage. And he's going to go, not a problem, sir. Who do you bank with? Right. If you could just log in, sir, we're going to send da-da-da. Right. 
This is permission for us to access your bank. We're gonna send you a whatever. Sign here or fill in the forms here. Okay, just simple signature. It's gonna take the compute. You will then do strong customer authentication from your bank. It's gonna take another PIN number in. There you are. Probably by the time the person has finished talking to you at the end of those two sentences, the computers will have gone off. They can read up to seven years of your bank statements. They'll have come back using artificial and machine learning intelligence. They'll have analyzed your last seven years worth of bank statements. They'll be able to tell what your salary is, what your outgoings are, whether you've missed payments, etc., because they'll be able to see the pattern of payments. <laughs> and hey, presto, they'll be able to say, great, sir, you've actually come in for a mortgage of, well, Robert's case, maybe, I don't know, 150 grand. Actually, we can give you a mortgage for 200,000 because we know you can afford it. But not only that, because we can tell in the last seven years you've never missed a payment on your previous mortgage, rather than take our standard rate, we can give you a better rate because you're a lower risk. Likewise on loans and all these type of things. So the consumer won't think of it as PSD2 open banking. What they're just going to see is the functionality of a service that enables them to get the best possible rates, the best possible opportunities. Imagine you have all of the information. Now, once they've got that information, they haven't got a right to keep seeing it. No, no. It That's it. Destroyed afterwards. Destroyed afterwards. Yeah. But they can then give you a far more accurate credit scoring because they can really understand you and who you are. Yeah. Likewise, if you think about this as a, a business, you're running a business here, Robert. Yeah. Do you have, you probably have a main bank account. We're just hearing uh, Shares die of coughing over here. I think he just needs to go and get something stronger than the water. Seriously, you know, you run a business. You have normal set of bank accounts. You might even have a set of international bank accounts, yes? Yeah. And do you also maybe, because you're in the prepaid industry, have given your staff prepaid T&E cards as well? We will, yeah. Yep, so you have. So now you've got three different sets of accounts. You need to log in to manage those. Of course. Would you pay £5, £10 a month for your FD? I'm sure he would. And says all of those accounts get brought together on a single screen. No more logins. All the information is there for me 24 hours a day. Saves me logging in. Everything's available. Just one login. Simple. I can move money between the two. I can keep track of everything. I've got nice charts, interfaces. Is he going to call that PSD token banking? No. He's just going to call that my SME management system. So to me, what we're talking about when we talk about awareness of open banking is almost like saying to people, can you do contactless payments? And they go, yes. What's the technology that contactless payments runs on? And they're going to go, well, contactless. No, it's not. We all know it's RFID, NFC. It's the technology that's going to sit behind all of these great consumer propositions. Why does the consumer and the business need to understand about the technology that sits behind it? It doesn't. It just needs to understand about the propositions. If you look globally, so many countries are rolling out their version of open banking, and there are many versions out there. It's many flavors of vanilla. But they're, what they're realizing is this becomes an incredible boost to the fintech community to create new and interesting propositions that can actually drive GDP and customer experience. And it's not, you know, as long as it's done sensibly. And therefore, what you give is actually a better ecosystem out there. Yeah. Now, if I was a big bank, would I be worried? Of course they are, which is why we're seeing HSBC, Barclays already saying on the CMA9, hey, you can merge all your other bank accounts into our app because the the business that manages to get all people to, to link everything into their business is going to be the leader. And the great example of that is ClearScore. Do you remember ClearScore sold out last year for how much? A couple of huge number, wasn't it? And all they do is take your credit score, give it to you free of charge where everyone else was charging you in the past, and send you offers based on your credit scores. How much more could they give you if they actually had your line item detail now that they're going to get from the bank account? Exactly. 
or take a mobile company. A mobile company knows where you are, correct? What if a mobile company said, we'll aggregate all your bank accounts together on your phone for you. Now they know where you are and what you spend. So every time you walk past the Tesco's, because they know you normally shop at Sainsbury's, Tesco will automatically send you a voucher. But if you walk past a Sainsbury's, Sainsbury's won't give you a voucher because they know you're already a loyal customer. So now, if you combine that geo-tracking data with the, the detailed spend data you get from banking and combine the two, imagine the level of offers you could make out to users. Yeah. No. Now, that's open banking. But is that <clears throat> going to be called open banking or is that going to be called offer for you? No, exactly. This is a problem we had involved. Electronic money, prepaid, all these terms were never what consumers understood. They just understood the product. They understand and the proposition, not even the product. They understand the proposition. proposition. What is the proposition that is going to make my life better, easier, save me money? Let's ask David one final closing question. One final yeah. question. I thought that was the long question. You just asked. All the places you're doing stuff around the world, where do you think is the most, where are you seeing the most noise? Is there like, are you going to tell me that there's something happening in Uzbekistan or there's something happening in... You know, where in the world? And, and I know that you've done a lot of trips to the Caribbean recently, but anywhere else? Car- Caribbean is nice, but I wouldn't... I think the Caribbean is interesting. Um, Where's the hot Mid- spots? Middle East, you've got some market, got some stuff going on in Iraq at the moment. That's interesting. Certainly, that, it's very interesting what's going on over there. Libya, I think, is running nicely at the moment. We're just looking at doing some stuff in Somalia at the moment. That's, I think, very interesting. And so if you're going to say to me, where's the hottest spot? It's very easy to answer that. You've got to look at Africa. And I'm not talking about M-Pesa because M-Pesa was great and it's become huge and everything else. But you look at countries like the, the more side countries. So on the west side, you've always had Nigeria. On the east coast, you've always had Kenya. It's the two driving financial center hubs. What you're now seeing is the halo effect where the it's it's going out into the rest of africa now and you are really seeing the the innovations coming out of there and i'm going to bring this back to the beginning where we started on and i've been doing some research for an article at the moment that on beekeeping i'm writing an article at the moment about the internet of bees because these days there's a whole range of monitoring systems you get for your beehives and most of them as you'd imagine are coming out of america where they have like you know how do you get the tags on their legs sir Huh? How do you get the tags on the I'll explain it later. Legs? I'll explain it. I think the funniest thing, you joke about that, they are now putting on Asian hornets actual antennas so we can track them back to the nest to destroy them. But that's another story. So individual Asian hornets. So nanotechnology tags. Yes. But more importantly, on a broad perspective, and I went through, there's about 10 companies in this sector. New Zealand has huge bee farming. There's a couple of companies in the UK, Australia, etc. One company coming out of Nigeria. And that's what I mean. When you look at the technology out there and you think of Africa, you're now taking on a a hobby-type industry. That type of technology is quite sophisticated technology measuring hive humidity, weights, temperatures, all these things to help you understand. There is a company in Africa who started up and have got a whole set of equipment, as maybe not quite as good, but it's nice equipment, as some of the most technology-advanced companies in the world. And to that end, therefore, Africa is... The education in Africa and the drive of those educated people to creating fintech solutions. Fintech in Africa is growing hugely and that will drive that whole content. So when you say what's the most exciting place, I would go Africa more than India. And the reason I know, Shresh, you spend a lot of time going out to that part of the world 
India, to me, yes, it's equally exciting, but it's it's one country. And therefore, what one regulator says goes for the whole country. In Africa, you've got multiple regulators and they're not always 100% aligned. So what might not be possible in one country becomes possible in another. So as a region, I'm taking Southern Africa, South Africa out of this. North Africa is still behind on it. But if you look at the, you know, those middle African countries, East and West Coast Africans, you're seeing some really interesting stuff coming out of those that's very exciting. And I'm looking at David's phone now and thinking, mobile payments. He's got a 10 quid note under his phone cover. Is that contactless? <laughs> no, it's called, it's, called, it's called emergency money. Always have some cash on you. Don't say I carry a lot of cash, but I will always carry some cash on you because we never know when Visa might go down again and I can't use my cards. You can't say that live, David. You're just going to upset one of your potential clients. But it could be MasterCard or it could be UnionPay or it could be JCB. <coughs> Let's face it, they're all schemes. And we all know, and I'm looking here around the table, we all know, actually, in fairness, everyone goes down at some point. Well, we're not talking about Sureshna's weekends now. <laughs> <laughs> and I think on that point, we should almost be drawing it to a close. Yes, we always we should. We should, on, uh, yes, uh, uh, straight through payments, as we'd like to say. Thank you for taking the time to drop by. And um, We really appreciate all your input. Next time I we can do it live on stage somewhere. With Sounds good. Love it. Thank right. you very much. Thank you. I'm going to buzz Cheers. off. <laughs> So, before Robert gets in here and says, you know, go and like this podcast on iTunes, what you really need to do is go and like this podcast, this particular one that's been David Parker. What, none of the others? Well, otherwise, you see, they might, you, you might get Robert and Suresh back again, just waffling the two of them. You know, at least have someone interesting on, like, me or, I don't know, you know. <laughs> Nothing like hubris. <laughs> yes, that's right. So, look, what you need to do is get out there, like this podcast, and uh, on the iTunes store to make sure that it, it becomes really successful. And, and then they might invite me back again. You'll be lucky.